G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch. Today, a journalist, comedian and celloist is our feature guest. First, in the box. Look across my desk, it was dropped into my postbox and or inbox in the last week at time of release. Tuka of Fundamentals is marking January 1st and the reflection it brings, jam and rhyme with protest in the mix, focused around the bushfires in recent months. To quote, I found myself withdrawing and reflecting on what was most important at that exact time and space in my life, the love I have for my girlfriend and the respect I have for the people that were losing their homes as the celebrations were in full swing. From New Year's Eve to Running Red Lights, a new cut from the Avalanches featuring River Kumo, Pink Sufo, comes a tale of loss and space between the notes, with lyrics from David Cloud Burn, who they worked with in the past, now past, deep in the middle eight. While on the beat of music, Sachi, New Zealand's electric duo, has a bilingual French and English bop called Inchante, featuring Naiki. Smash of disco, the four-on-the-floor kind, and French house. This release follows the infectious popular Nights with Ruby EP of last year. One more for today from the northern beaches of Sydney, surfing the sink by Toshiki. About being in a pipe, a different yet same one to the one found in the surf, comes a home for this surf rock guitar single. A full-length album from the three-piece out on the 27th of March 2020 called World Keeps Turning. Across it, frontman Nick Philpott's songwriting chops punch through across the release, though notably Paul Mullins on bass pens Lean On Love, making a debut with words too. The earth and the humans on it get a strong look, ecology not far from mind. There is also a limited 200 of World Keeps Turning on wax and not the kind suitable for the board. Another cut from the album is Inside Out. We'll put all the details in the show notes. Let's now head to our feature guest. Ange Lavoie-Pierre, latest show is Zealot, winner of an Adelaide Fringe Award, presented locally by Big Mood. They're also co-host of The Signal, an insightful daily news podcast. Episodes are of an oral digestible length averaging 15 minutes that focus on timely issues. They are also the star call operator of Mark Humphrey's The Greta Thunberg Hotline for 7.30 program of ABC Television, in the sketch, helping those in disbelief of the teenager's power. But when did music enter their life? What part did the cello play in their symphony of life? Ange joined John at Brick and Mortar Creative in Norwood, South Australia, for this chat. And welcome to Adelaide and welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you so much. Beautifully, you've been hosted here at the Adelaide Fringe with two South Australian artists, or, or collectives, we should say. Can we firstly talk about Big Mood, who they are, and how you fit into that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is Laura Desmond and Steph Mitchell. I know them just from Fringe World. Like, I sort of met them over in Edinburgh in the first place, and... I guess first knew about them because I knew about Laura as an artist. I thought, who better to have on board than two local girls because Adelaide's not at all my natural habitat. But I have got to love it. This is my third year here. What is your vibe about the Adelaide audiences? Let me preference it by saying other comedians have had Adelaide as their first gig. 
Hannah Gatsby starts their season in Mm. Adelaide. So how do you find Adelaide? I think of Adelaide as a really important audience. It is kind of where you, I mean, from an industry perspective, I really like, first of all, it's, you need to split the audience into two sections, right? It's like people who, who just come along for a good time to see some comedy. And what I like about that part of the audience in Adelaide is that they are up for it because it's the fringe and they're like, show me something I've never, ever seen before. And they're really up for that. And from an industry perspective, it's really important because it's the second biggest fringe in the world. Because in the Southern Hemisphere, it's like where you will be seen by people who could make important decisions about your career. And so I try to bring something like, that I'm pretty happy with to Adelaide. Like I try to do trials in Sydney to like friendly home crowd uh, punters in Redfern or something like mm. that. Back in Sydney, I did Hobart Fringe this year, which was, that was a very, very, you know, that was very wobbly on its legs, the show back then. But, uh, but you know, in a fun way, I think I like the chaos. I have a lot of fun there. But, um, but yes, Adelaide, I do try and sort of, obviously it'll develop, but I try to bring something that's pretty well formed. The Giant Dwarf is moving. Mm. What's your vibe on that? Because I'm sure there are some friendly ghosts at that within that venue. Totally, totally. You know, we had our last show there with the Bear Pack, who's an improv duo that I improvised the cello with, who are incredible in their own right. But that was the first place that I started doing comedy. That was the first place that I sort of went, oh, this is possible. And, you know, it felt really inaccessible to me at first because it's a, if you've ever been to the theatre, it's huge, it's old, it's heritage listed, rats everywhere, but the ceilings are enormous. It's, it's stunning and it's and it's old world beauty and charm. And, to, and there's this huge red velvet curtain and an enormous stage. And you're like, this, this is possible for me? It was a really kind of shocking almost incendiary idea that you could be on that stage but then that's kind of where I ended up starting so to have it move and there's no secret that in the arts world everyone's been quite open about this that it's very unhappy circumstances you know the landlords raised the rent it was not able to be met I don't no one else is coming in it was just they went you're not paying us enough and you have to get out they are moving up the road to a different venue which will be smaller and I'm sure you know will have its own peculiar charms that will come to love over the years but it was yeah yeah a lot of ghosts in those walls good bad ugly glorious all of them let's take you back to when were you first introduced to the cello i went to a school in bathurst called all saints and my mum used to teach there and i was lucky enough that they had a really great music program and so you just cycle through when you're like you know eight or ten or whatever you just sort of cycle through a bunch of different instruments and you know you'll see how it goes and i picked up the cello during one of those semesters and i achieved in like like a day on the cello what I achieved in months on any other instrument years on the piano I used to bash away at the piano for years before that and was just kind of they decided that I was like musical so they're like oh we'll just like keep throwing instruments at her until not literally under the age of eight it was the piano Uh, yeah and then I had a horrible work ethic because my parents and I blame them for this in a light-hearted way they were very supportive too supportive I would argue (laughs) really they're like you're very clever and you can do whatever you want so I was two years young for my year at school so I'd been told from this really young age oh you're very bright and I think it did a weird amount of uh Damage is maybe a bit of a dramatic way to describe it, but it meant that I didn't work as hard as I could have or should have and just sort of waited for things to work out for me. And I've got had to get better at that throughout life. But yeah, with the piano, not much progress. And then within hours on the cello, it just made sense. It was like I could, could just play it much more easily. Sounds like we have to go even further back to when the piano first appeared in your life. We had a piano 
in our house. It was a really old piano. It was always just that charming little bit out of key, big cracks in the structural integrity of this piano. But my mum used to be a very intuitive player. You know, she wasn't technically, you know, perfect or anything like that, but she always just had a love of the piano and there were two or three songs that she could play beautifully big rolling overly elaborate introduction to piano man by billy joel <laughs> and fur elise and just like songs that they're not obscure by any stretch of the imagination but they are very beautiful and that was my earliest memory gosh i've never talked about this it's my earliest memory of hearing the piano of music is my mum uh, of, of live music is my mum sitting down at the piano and playing these songs and singing them with great gusto and great joy and playing kind of games with us, with us kids, me and my little brother Mark, like looking down at us on the ground and looking back up. And that was like, and that was, yeah, that was the piano. And I was her audience and she'd, yeah, when she was looking after us, she'd play these and do it and real like ham up the showmanship of it as well. Like just go to town singing these songs for us. And we thought it was the best thing. Um, I guess she must have started teaching me little bits and pieces on the piano and then sent me off to music lessons with a woman named Barbara Bruce, who I got a, a letter out of the blue from, actually. Are you very suspicious of people with two first names? Always. Yeah, they're spies. I got a letter out of the blue at the ABC, and sometimes when you get a letter at the ABC from a name that you don't immediately recognize always you assume that's like a crank right you're like oh this is going to be terrible this is like someone you know who's threatening to you know threatening some sort of harm to me or telling me how much they hate me Barbara Bruce wrote to me and I opened it up and it was this charming letter and it was sort of you probably won't remember me but I remember you you're a, a student the letter went on to say, you know, she was saying nice things like I've followed your career on the ABC and you know heard you over the years on the radio by the way, I've enclosed this extraordinary piece of paper that I've kept. It's manuscript, this piece of music that you wrote when you were five years old or something. Like, I was really young. And here it is. It was called Snowflakes, and I remember being blown away at the time. And it was this haunting little melody, and I remember it. I remember, like, this conversation where I'd come into pianos and I'd played it for when she'd gone, it's extraordinary, I'm going to write that down. I went, so very simple but very beautiful and haunting. And the truth of the matter was that my cousin had, that was a song that my cousin had like learned it as an exercise in a book. I had heard it, liked it, memorized it and started playing it. And then as children, <laughs> as children will sometimes do, I mean, I didn't, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have any moral development by the time you're five. You just kind of, and this teacher sort of looked down at me at this lesson and was like, Angela, did you write this? And I went, Yes, <laughs> yes, I didn't think about the consequences. She insisted on notating it and sharing it with everyone to the point that, you know, I was then being asked to like play it for other people. Like it was my first experience of being like caught in a lie, consequences of that lie. My mum caught me out eventually. I was caught out because mum made me play it to my auntie Trish, who was my cousin's mother, and then went, she didn't make that up. Alison plays that song on the piano the eventual inevitable crushing shame that comes with a lie but I I haven't written back to Barbara Bruce because I feel I can't reply without addressing the, the fact that she sent me this piece of music it feels like a pointless way to disappoint her now that she like having her having been impressed with this for 25 odd years and yet I don't want to contribute to my own lie 25 years down the track having learned that lesson <laughs> once already 
Your mother's there. She's basically, she is performing to you, Billy Joel. Mm. Were there any records in your house at the same time? Yeah, it was Rodriguez, Cold Fact. It was Graceland, Paul Simon. Um, It was a lot of Neil Diamond, Hot August Night, weirdly, who I just think is like maybe the funniest man in the world. For a a while, I just was obsessed with him on Twitter and would just retweet a lot of what he did because I just think he's fundamentally a funny figure and I can't explain why. Credence Clearwater Revival. So basically the James Blunt of the 70s? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's exactly. That's, a, that's the vibe that I get. That's the kind of wheelhouse that my parents were. That was the influence. What was your first record? I won a dance competition at Time Zone in Sydney. Yeah, whatever the sort of, it was like a big gaming sort of uh, thing down at, at Darling Harbour. A dance competition and my prize was a Bewitched single. Very, very sort of saccharine Irish pop girl pop group from the 90s. I went straight from that flavour to like tapes of like Limp Biscuit. I went like from that to rap rock. Like I just kind of, I always liked kind of extremity in music. That was something that I was attracted to. How far did you take that extremity? And more importantly, what friendships did you form by sharing that? I found that it was a bridge to older kids that was kind of why Mm. I liked certain kind of music and you know growing up in the country as well I think growing up in Bathurst um, Forbes but you know Bathurst by the time I was really getting into this music Triple J was king it was like you know it was in lieu of a personality or an identity (laughs) when you're still working out who you are you know having like alternative culture and counterculture as a reference point even though you didn't have the language to talk about it that way at the time was really really important it was you know stimulating in an environment that was otherwise country towns exaggerate the monoculture I think because you you know there is this need to fit in because it is such a small community and instead I chose to I always wanted to differentiate myself in a way that I'm sure was very painful for my family and for everyone else around me because I was that annoying kid that was like, I'm not like you, man. I'm like, I'm not a conformist. I was just one of those nightmare teenagers who found their identity that way. Was music essential to that finding yes, identity? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was like I became inordinately angry and upset very young as a teenager. Like that storm that parents wait to break when they have a teenager like oh they'll get angry and weird at some point happened quite early for me and I was very unpleasant to be around for many years yeah and music was the kind of the comfort music was like the only thing I cared about at that point your current show is called Zealot which focuses on your time back when you were 10 years of age where a change occurred let's talk about that yeah how much was religious music part of your life prior to the age of 10? Only in so far as music uh, music heightens experience so much. I was always a very sensitive kid. Like I remember I wasn't allowed to watch Gumby, I think it was, for years because my mum would come back into the room after I'd been watching Gumby and I'd be crying hysterically. And she couldn't work out why, so she just banned me from watching the show. Turns out it was the theme music... And I remember being really deeply moved by it. I can't remember the content of the show, but the music was like, was so I was a very, very sensitive kid. So I think if anything, music was a bit of a gateway drug for religion for me. Try to get some age on this. So, yeah. so Pokey and Gumby, or Gumby generally. Three, four, five. Was religion already in your life at that stage? Yeah, but in a sort of nominal way. It's like, yes, Jesus is real. Yes, God is real. Yes, Santa is real. We go to church at 
Christmas, Easter, and funerals and weddings. Yeah. So not a but Sunday say thing. Grace before dinner and stuff. So my parents were very committed to this. They still are. They still would call themselves Christians, which is why I try to make it so that this show does not. It's not about denigrating religion. I was raised religiously in a, in a religious Christian household, but not with any of the zealotry that I found when I was ten, and I had this kind of conversion experience. Right. So let's talk about that. What music were you listening to at the age of nine, ten? Probably still... Because if Gumby's music was moving you back then... Yeah. I wish I had cooler answers to this question, but I don't. It's like around 10, I might have been sort of moving, starting to move towards some alternative music that was like quite extreme and angry. And I struggled to name bands. Limp Bizkit still like seems to be coming up rock. I remember my first gig that I went to was Grinspoons, like very much that Australian alternative world, The Living End. I liked the anger in punk, but I hadn't had a kind of thorough grounding in, in punk. You know, you read Rolling Stone, you read Blunt Magazine, you listened to Triple J. Those were the three kind of Bibles. Did you see any of these bands, Greenspoon and the like, live? Yeah, Greenspoon came to Bathurst. I remember the sensation and the feeling. I actually went to write about it the other day for the first time. So it's fresh in my head. We showed up to this gig and it was my first ever gig and I was so excited to be there. And you get to a gig and you go, oh, oh, I have to be closer. This is so exciting. I have to be closer. I must have been, I would have been 12, I suppose. Struggled to place it exactly on a timer, but I was quite short still. I mean, I have to be closer, and it was dark, and it was like full of these tall, sweaty men. And then you sort of got a bit closer, and I'm like, I can't see, and I just, it's not close enough. Like the energy of the music, you just want to be closer to it. And so then I got to the very, very front, and it was violent, right? It's scary. Like, and everyone's mm. twice your size, and you're being jostled around, and you can barely move, and you're being crushed up against the barrier. But that just added to it. You just wanted more of that. The more, the scarier, and, and the more risk there was involved, the higher the stakes, and the more it just sort of further elevated the experience of the music. And then you get to the very, very front, and these guys are probably looking down, going, like, what? Because it's like, like being in a forest a sweaty forest what's she doing here and like oh, are we gonna hurt her even that wasn't enough it was like the first time I realized it's like oh oh it's never enough like I'm never going to be happy like you can never get far enough to the front you know that feeling when you're young and you always you want more you want to possess the music it's not enough to experience it and that was kind of when I noticed that did that time. inspire you to want to be on stage yourself yes Yes, I think I always just wanted to be on stage, but then thought it was maybe hokey or hack or predictable to say that that's what you wanted and perhaps unlikely and therefore an embarrassing goal to admit to. What was happening in the music sphere when you were full-on going religious? I always had a real tension because I had a strong head in a streak, but also I engaged with religion in an intellectual way, insofar as that's possible when you're 10, 11, 12, 13, but I always wanted to read a lot and test the logic of what it was that was being told to me. And so it was always a very anguished kind of faith. But where the music came into it is that I just remember being in these church services that I, there's this one church that I kind of insisted we go to. It was sort of like uh, Anglican evangelical. Let's blend. be clear, you insisted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, let's go to this church. You yeah. were 10. Yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, and they were up for it. You know, my family was religious anyway. My poor little brother, he just got <laughs> swept along with all this. He was very, very good natured about the whole thing. And I remember it was hard for me. There were certain hymns it was hard for me to get through without crying because I was so moved by them. I still find that when I listen to some of 
those hymns because I was listening to them to putting together this show I wanted to put some hymns into it as transition music ideally you know hymns that are silly and funny and like capable of being laughed at in some way but I ended up revisiting all these very moving hymns that I grew up listening to and I still find that they sort of I just get that feeling in my throat like I might be about to cry and when I was that age and I was listening to them for the first time and really believing in God and believing in everything in that universe as described I would cry in the middle of the church I'd find it very 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 moving some religions use music as a selling point a place yeah. very keen to get on the uh, top of the charts will yeah. send me three or four different emails about the one song and the album being released they want to be on the charts they want to engage their audience with music that's right talk to me about that and how you were seeing that across those years of maybe nine through to 14 into now well it wasn't Like if we're talking about, say, the kind of prosperity gospel, Hillsong churches where they've really used music as a marketing strategy and a way to position themselves with young people, our church borrowed from that. But it's a small town. It was families. It wasn't like there weren't a lot of young people there. I mean, there's a university in Bathurst, but you weren't. It wasn't super easy to get those people in. You know, it was was young families and, and just kind of. Bathurstians you know so marketing religion is like a cool thing that was like look we've got like this pop music sensibility and you know we're not so culturally remote as churches of the past have been it wasn't ever going to get too many people through the door where it came in was that it would once you were in the door it would really hook you because you it gave you this strong emotional engagement with the material and then it was blended with the this sort of rigorous intellectual approach to the gospel that was quite they, they were kind of working you in, on two fronts right. um, but it was less of a marketing tool in answer to your question in the way that you see it used in the, uh, the mega churches if you will can we talk about a character in the show without giving away too much of the show? Because yeah. it struck me, because I'm an Adelaide boy, sure. that for some reason talking about the Hilltop Hoods <laughs> is a great pickup line. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to sort of know how to talk about this without giving away too much. But All right, well, let me ask this question yeah. then. And people can go and see the show to get the full context of what I'm asking. Were you ever, have you ever been a fan of the Hilltop Hoods? And it's okay not to be. <laughs> no, massively. I remember um, Nosebleed Section was probably the first time. Oh, no, The Herd was the first time that I ever really loved Aussie hip-hop. And then, and then the Hilltop Hoods too. Definitely. I think it was such a specific tone though to hit. There was so one culture. I mean, the, the Herd was a little bit different. They were sort of a bit ideological in what they were doing. But that like, it's your round, <laughs> you know, that kind of way that Hilltop Hoods would talk I for me it's been really exciting to see how Australian hip-hop's really matured and it's a lot more diverse now than it used to be but yeah grew up listening to it absolutely um and, and being lectured to about it by some unsavory characters at my church somewhat taints the memory hi I'm Rishi K. Sherway and I'm Joshua Molina we're from the West Wing Weekly and you're currently listening to Radio Notes Radio Notes where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more You can join us on The West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was the star of the show, and we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Murch and Radio Notes. We're currently speaking to Ange. She's a celloist. 
What do you get from cello playing? You do a lot of improvisation with mm. the cello. So what is it from the instrument of um, choice? I don't switch my brain off very well. I don't really know how to... Yeah, I'm not very good at that. And so the cello is good because it's this skill that I have from a long time ago, which I, I put the cello down for 10 years, uh, like a bout of serious illness when I was in my late teens. And then just put the cello down then mainly because when I would play it my mum would just cry <laughs> she was worried I wasn't gonna make it so she'd just cry so I stopped playing the cello for a bit and then only restarted to play with the bear pack as a in the world's weirdest niche apparently which is a comedy cellist and found straight away that yeah it was like accessing this forgotten part of my brain and because it's improvisational you're not sitting there and having to focus on the music I'm sure if you were like measuring my brainwaves if you were like representing my brainwaves in a visual way they would change pretty dramatically I feel like it's working I feel like my brain's working in a different way when I do that and it's a lot less frenetic why do you think it is that you can't switch off is it because you're so interested in information and making sure you don't miss something yeah I think I've got this like hamster wheel that goes because I my memory's not so great uh, and so I don't trust So it's that checking back in. It's checking, 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 checking. I think I probably have some, and I don't mean this as a gag, I mean this like in an actual way, some OCD. And yeah, this need to check and check and recheck and recheck, which is good. It's served me very well. It's made me, in a lot of ways, it's made me a very organised and driven and goal-orientated person. But it means, I mean, you know, I've got my diary right here in front of me. I can't actually go anywhere without it because it, I freak out. Which, by the way, I'm completely freaked out. I decided to go paper this year. Yeah. And we've got exactly the same diary. Yeah, and the same pen. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Whoa. <laughs> but, like, I, I need these lists and I need I have to... a feeling I shouldn't be here. It's like two Time Lords. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, for you... To externalise everything so as not to forget it. So, I've found these little workarounds to try and stop my brain from doing that. But it's just the way the way that I'm wired i have ideas i get excited easily and then i'm scared that i'm gonna forget them how do you then keep memories i didn't for a long time and i really regret i really regret there's about like there's like 15 years where i only recorded things intermittently and now i obsessively record everything like my notes section on my phone and my google docs is just overflowing and I'm working on so many projects that I love and excite me and I you know screenwriting and you know short stories and all this and performing and doing all this stuff that it makes me feel very fulfilled and there was 15 years where I was just kind of it's like I was asleep I think that's partly it was partly like a brain thing it was partly like a, well more like 10 years actually but yeah it took just took me longer so for context the illness that I'm talking about is cancer mm. I think it just took me it took me a lot longer than I thought to kind of recover from from that brain wise for you then having that 10 years of wilderness so to speak is there certain music that clicks and brings you back to certain times yeah, hugely. Yeah. In fact, I make these monthly playlists on Spotify as a kind of rolling time capsule of that period because I'm the sort of person, I don't know if you're like this, where you, if you find a song that you love, you can't not listen to it. Right now I have like the February playlist right. for this year and the, there was the January one and I try not to dive back into them too much until a couple of years has passed. But they are all available. They're all available. So Zanro, for example, an updated one, so it's like a new one. 
that's not kept. No, no, no. I keep them all. They're little, they're discreet time capsules for that time, mainly for my, I mean, you know, people, some people follow them, people are welcome to follow them, but it's really just for, so, so I can time travel back to that moment if I want to and remember how I was feeling at that time because I'll listen to something because it makes me feel something, right? That's why we listen to anything and that's how you engage with it. And, and so it immediately evokes that feeling and, and everything that was happening in your life at that time. Yeah, it's like a direct access point. It's literally, it's time travel. So that's been useful over the years? Yeah, very painful at times as well. I started doing that during a difficult period as like a there's a relationship breakdown going on as a, as a sort of mode of expression um and so it's taken me years to be able to go back to it but I wish that I had it I wish that I had it back to you know that sort of weird dark ages period that I'm talking about that like 10 years where I just forgot to record anything much at all I would give anything to be able to choose a month in 2011 go back there and you can still do it informally like if I can go like really think hard despite my you know rubbish memory Mm. about what it was that I was listening to back then and go back and listen to that album then you can transport back there visceral nature of music if you're in a shopping center and they're playing a song from 2011 2012 for example do you then get a feeling inside that goes that song means something and then do you try to work that process through yeah, we all know that feeling, right? Like you're in Coles and something comes on. Slightly deja vu, but not deja vu. Yeah, and it's like being, if it's the right song or the wrong song, it's like someone, like it's like a fist in your guts. It's like someone's just like grabbed you and like twisted something mm. crucial inside you. And I think the old instinct was to suppress that and dissociate and compartmentalise it, which is what I'm very, very good at. But I think the better thing to do and what I would try to do now is to articulate that feeling somehow, put it down, get it down. Are there some songs that you just can't listen to? Yeah, there's there's probably only one album that I can't ever listen to again. It's, uh, It's Beach House, Teen Dream. I can picture it perfectly and I can listen to the entire thing back to back. In your head, that is. Yeah. 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 Never, never completely. It was an album that I fell in love to. And then the relationship broke down and I, and this was quite some years ago and I'm, I'm fine now. I listened to the album again once when I knew the relationship was over. I sat down and I listened to the whole thing start to finish. And I could, I could listen to it now, but part of me is, it's like, it's like you don't want to because it has such power and you're worried that by opening that box some of it will escape and the potency of it is what's impressive about it and so you want to save that for when you next need that feeling or you want that feeling because it is so rare to have that kind of potency contained in anything I once knew a guy who loved Nirvana so much he was saving the entire Nirvana back catalogue to listen to over the course of his life so he'd worked out how long he thought he was going to live and he had worked out how much of the Nirvana back catalogue he hadn't yet experienced and he was letting himself listen to a Nirvana song at regular intervals for the rest of his life. So I really hope he doesn't have premature death for so many reasons, but especially him, it would seem tragic because I just don't know anyone who's loved a band quite so much or at least in that specific way. But it's a little bit like that. It's like you're impressed with the potency of it and so you don't want to let it lose any 
So he'd be getting small hits by listening to Foo Fighters. Going, There's a little bit of Dave Grohl in there. That's okay. Yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. It's just enough. It's just enough. Just a whiff. <laughs> want to talk about the idea of reading in bars. What is it about the written word that you find such enjoyment in, in those scenarios? I've always found my brain works better when its isolation isn't exaggerated by literal isolation. So, which is why reading and working in bars has always been good for me because if there is activity happening, then I don't know, for some reason that's always, I, I found it easier to focus that way. So that's why bars, I probably do drink too much, um, sit and have like a really nice martini with a book. Is that um, the drink of choice, martini? Yeah, yeah, really nice martini and, and a good book. R- radio and podcasts and sort of the audio experience and music and live performance is so linear. You don't have a choice about how you experience it. It's this train that comes for you and then it passes you by and whistles as it does. And that's there's a joy to that form as well, but it is very specific. In contrast, you know, you couldn't written word couldn't be more different. Mm. You have the absolute autonomy to move around the page and to move around the meaning and revisit parts and and just like squeeze everything you can out of it as you go. And I have come to enjoy, really enjoy kind of intertextual reading like Gia Tolentino and Rebecca Solnit. They'll refer back to other writers and you get this richness to the writing and you can jump in and out and I'll sometimes read with like reference material next to me so I can learn what it is they're talking about. Try not to go to my phone to do it because then Mm. you fall into your phone and reading time's over. Are you a lyrical kind of music listener? Um, I thought I was, and then I've I've recently there are songs that I've thought that I knew very well, and I've heard lyrics and gone like I, I never considered what they were saying. I think now I would say that with a bit more wisdom and hindsight, I probably engage primarily on an emotional melodic level with and rhythmic level with music, and the real lesson in that is that I have always loved hip-hop really loved hip-hop and I would learn all the lyrics to these songs and kind of you know rap along to them but I think it was the rhythmic element of it rather than the lyrics but I'm, I'm coming more to the lyrics as I get older hip-hop it's about being inside the the canon of what they're trying to say yeah it's a, it's a, it's incredibly immersive it's incredibly you can be so much more a part of hip-hop than you can of any other music because to participate melodically is one thing but participate lyrically and rhythmically at the same time like the energy that you can put into that performance is almost limitless right whereas when you need to sing something or you need to perform something melodically it's kind of there are natural constraints on what it is if there's an atonality to it then the the ceiling sort of disappears on how much energy you can put into and it and the call and response has a sort of amen to it as well totally yeah yeah there's that as well just to bring that back bringing that back very skillfully done you left religion to one side Mm-hmm. But now you're with Tarot, which yeah. is also about understanding based upon the written word and images and understanding and philosophies and everything else. Right. Who first introduced you to Tarot? Um, my friend, Eddie Sharp, who has written with me a lot. I came back from Edinburgh last year and was a bit of a just a bit listless and weird and uh, deranged as people often are when they come back from Edinburgh and I was trying to write the beginnings of what became this show for to sort of trial out in a split bill at Sydney Fringe and it was hanging out at Eddie's house and just not knowing what I was doing it was just a mess and he started he did a couple of readings for me but was quite mortified because I think he thinks of me as quite a grounded rational person maybe that's not the word but certainly like it's not someone who believes in magic and I don't 
but he was like oh, I guess I'll do a reading for you but you don't you don't care about this don't listen to me what are you doing and just sort of like half-heartedly threw out some cards to me I was like this makes sense this is great I love this and immediately fell in love with it and went about getting cards and learning and just reading obsessively everything I could for the next little while so it's all pretty new to me still full disclosure I mean like I'm a baby in this world but also look as I say don't believe in magic don't think of it as a substitute for religion things that I think it's interesting adjacent sort of territory and I think for some people it is religious spiritual experience but like the, the psychoanalysts loved tarot for the reason that it mucks around in archetypes right it's just a useful way to kind of triangulate meaning with you and another person better still a friend and you use the cards as a kind of medium for understanding yourself and just getting insight that you never would otherwise and also it's a way to cut through with people mm. you sit down with a friend it might take you two hours to talk and you may not ever talk about the thing that matters but if you put the cards down then the thing you say to the person is what's something that's been keeping you up at night let's talk about that you have to ask the cards then we unpack it in this quite really like quite a clinical organized structured way the way i do it anyway religion was there to like the year the age of 10 and now heading towards the third or maybe in the third decade mm. You're finding another form of finding understanding in what is written in a way or, yeah. or an understanding of a particular kind of text. Is it a sense of guidance that you find through them? No, no, I'm my own guide. I'm my own guide. Yeah, and the wisdom of people before me, that that's my guide. Totally different experiences. It's sort of mischievous of me to equate them in the show. I think they tell us something about the same material, which is why the same the same area of, of culture in the world, which is why I, I just it's how I justify equating them in the show. But for me, totally different experiences because I very literally, very wholly, completely believed in Christianity in the Word of God as described at the time to me, and to the point I, w- I was utterly convinced, and that's why that process of going from belief to unbelief was actually pretty like painful and you don't cross back over that bridge i know one person who has but i think in general it's fair to say that you don't cross back over that bridge once you cross it once yeah and for me i think i like the ritual and i like the drama i think that's the other reason i think i'm attracted to both of them for similar reasons in that i liked the theatricality and the story of religion as well and i like the theatricality and the story of mysticism and so part of my personality that that appeals to that's still there so that that's the parallel i suppose what joy are you finding in your comedy at the moment you are the receptionist of the greta thunberg hotline which of course went quite <laughs> virile as yes. the kids say. Yeah, they do say that. what is that vibe that you have for comedy right now what's exciting you about it what are you looking forward to got this absurd web series called literally absurd is also absurd that it happens at all called imposters gross out humor which we didn't ever really intend to do but when we started writing it and making it the things that made us laugh so hard so so hard because we, st- we we started having these ideas just because we were doing a split bill together she was the person who i first did a split bill with i just bullied her into doing comedy she didn't do stand-up she was like she's a very funny improviser um incredible actor split now when you feel as if you're not really ready to make your debut or maybe you're trialing new material or or whatever but you're just for whatever reason you don't want to do a full hour and you rope in a friend 
and say, come on, let's do this together. And we toured this split bill because I wanted to kind of get a taste for the comedy circuit, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Edinburgh, before I went out and said, ta-da, here's my first hour, which is what last year's show was. So, But the year before, Jane and I went and did that together. And when we were out on the road, we would sit and just the stuff that would make us laugh, we'd come up with these ideas and the stuff that would make us laugh was always like weirdly gross stuff, like the kind of humour that is not usually associated with women. And I think that is what I like about what we do is that we sort of try to... The, the feeling that you get in the world, the feeling that you get when you feel as if you might be an imposter, right. that scenario. There's one that was set at a baby shower. There's one that we did about like being at a nail salon and being made to look pretty and not really knowing how to exist in the world after that. Jane dies in that one. Spoiler. It's incredibly weird. There's blood. There's baby shit. I make Jane piss herself at one point in an office like water cooler scenario. It's just we're trying to make real the common moments that all people in general, but women, you know, we're doing it from a female perspective, feel where you're like, is, it, is this just me or is this uh, the weirdness of the world? Let me just mention sending a fax is one of the most beautiful lines I've seen in quite a while. <laughs> I have to go send a fax as a way to get out of anything. Gotta send a fax. <laughs> it took me back to at least 1995. I don't know if it stands as a excuse anymore, but it's a wonderful burn if you get out of something quickly. Um, to be like, yeah, I'm going to go send a fax. Well, hey, hey, this is Jeremy Neal, and I'm coming up on Radio Notes to talk all about life and my new album, We Were Trying to Make It Out. Also coming up next time here on the show, you've been getting into, if I may for a moment be parochial from my end, been getting into the Adelaide Fringe Festival season. How was that? <laughs> well, that was awesome. I'd never actually taken, like, uh, how can I put it, a specific journey to really check out one of the festivals, and I was really blown away. Marlena, my wife and I, we went and we just had a great time. We went to lots of different shows and we saw, you know, there was elements of the, of the performances and the whole festival that really were fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough to people. The Rebel, you know, performance in the Spiegel tent was awesome. And I, I got to say what really impressed me was not only were they great musicians, but then they were doing circus acrobatics and that sort of thing, gymnastics. And, you know, as much as I'd like to fantasize that I could always do that in my show, I, I highly doubt that, uh, <laughs> um, you know. And that's where I, I thought when I saw that, I thought that's amazing because you've got such awesomely talented people who are multi-talented and, and, and in different arts. I thought that was really impressive. That's Andrew Ferris of In Excess and now Going Solo. Let's now continue our feature chat for this week. Angie's our special guest on Radio Notes. We're here with those in life talking about music. Your favourite live music experience? My favourite band in the whole world, in, in the history of the world, as because of their live music experience. Are you familiar with the Sydney band, now defunct, Royal Headache? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay, so I started seeing Royal Headache by accident because I went to early by myself to a Black Lips gig at Sydney University. Royal Headache was the support act and there were like five people in the audience and it was before they really kind of, they were big in like the punk scene in Sydney at that point, but they hadn't really taken off. And I saw them and I just 
thought, what is this? And started obsessively showing up to every single show that they did. And these shows were always wildly unpredictable. The ones that were kind of born out of the punk scene were, you know, really well attended. You never knew how long they were going to play for because Shogun, the lead singer, would go for 20 minutes and be like, you know, oh, I F this, I hate this, and then just kind of get off stage. Like, it wasn't actual contempt for his audience, but this seeming contempt for his audience in everything that he did. And he'd pace up and down. He was kind of hunched, and he'd take his – he had this the same windsheeter that he'd wear to every show, and he'd take the windsheet off early, and he had this kind of, like, scrawny body, and he'd, like, curl himself over like a, a leaf and sort of rip back and forth along the stage. And there was that violence in the shows that I loved – and I don't mean violence in a there's no malintent any from anyone, but there was nevertheless a real like a violence that was exciting to the shows, but it had a joyful aspect to it. And I remember being torn around and ripped around in there, and you'd like and you'd be pushing people, and you'd get up. It's not a way that you get to participate in the world very often as a woman. And I think that's what was exciting to me about it, particularly exciting. But in any case, the music itself is kind of power punk but he's got like a soul vocal he's got like this Otis Redding vocal but it's really kind of treated like uh, very like lo-fi and then it's all over the top of this garage punk soundtrack there are still people because there is a weird little band of like royal headache obsessives that's how much this band inspired love is that you know there are people now who I will like see in the street who I haven't seen in years who will just kind of like nod and like it's because we know each other from being royal headache fans <laughs> but yeah they they're, they're, they're gone now and it's very sad to me do you Ange find there is a connection between that idea of assertiveness and love um in the context of music you mean or in the context music of and life even it's like the nexus between those two concepts is probably passion, right? Um, it's like force of passion. It's it's where um, something is expressed in fullness, then that is exciting. Um, and that's, I think, why I've always gravitated towards extremity because it seems like the purest version of, of something. Ideology aside for one second, obviously, I mean, straight away my brain as the journalist goes to the dangerous version of extremity, which has always been a fascination of mine as, as well, which mm. is um, how people end up with extreme ideologies and particularly the far right is an ongoing area of research for me. But yeah, maybe interesting to me because I, I myself love the extremes, n- not in an ideological way, but I do understand how people end up um, out on a limb. Do you feel that people have become less passionate and more passive in their daily lives? Oh, that's a really big question. I don't know. I think I get a pretty narrow slice of society and I have the privilege of working in journalism and in the arts. And so that is a self-selecting sample of people who are naturally more passionate. So I couldn't talk about people more generally. No, I'm talking about your daily experience, your walking through life, observing. Walking through life. I don't think people are passive. I mean, I, I can't help but organise the world in terms of uh, silos, ideological silos now. I think, you know, we're being polarised. That is no good thing. And I think, yeah, we're not very good at talking to each other. I think the opportunities are now richer than ever to lock yourself in a figurative room with nothing that will ever challenge you. So perhaps in that sense, it's just so much easier to build a little nest, like a clustered little passive nest for yourself. And if you're that way inclined, you can do that. You don't have to negotiate with the world if you don't want to, whether that is having food delivered to your door instead of going out into the world, whether that is only hearing opinions that you 
happen to already agree with, it means that we're not as challenged in, in an involuntary way. It is, it is, there are easy ways to circumvent difficulty. What music is inspiring you to continue on? In life, I have a broader diet than I've ever had. This week, Denzel Curry. As a celloist, mm. who would you like to perform live on stage with? Oh, it's funny, you know, I don't think of myself as a, a cellist, but I suppose I am. I think of people who I would like to score. I think of the comedy that I would like to see that I would make up the music for rather right. than musicians that I would want to so, play So with. rather than the playing of the instrument, the actual scoring, as you're saying. Yeah, I think, you know, the most dramatic actors in the world and the people who are most emotional and unexpected and who are good at rendering a world onto the stage just using nothing but themselves and expressing them. See, Steen Raskopoulos is very, and Carlo as well, are very, very talented in this way, which is why they're exciting to score because you get to sort of react to them in the moment and participate in that conversation. So it'll be talk, 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 cello, cello, cello. You will almost be a third voice in dialogue that's happening. So I suppose I would love to be scoring the best improvisers in the world. Ange, thanks very much for doing Radio Notes. My absolute pleasure. Ange Lavoie-Pierre, co-host of The Signal, member of The Bear Pack, one half of Imposters with Jane Watts and on their own with their latest show for the stage, Zealot. Next episode, In Excesses, Andrew Farris joins Radio Notes ahead of their debut solo album release. Thanks very much for listening today. News just through that Stephen Smiley is returning as co-host with Ange on The Signal. Thanks very much to Ange for joining us for an extended chat today. Next time, Andrew Ferris. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 